your weekly podcast where we talk about the Bible and make a playlist. I'm Matt Kittle, pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Los Angeles, California. I'm Zach Ferris. I'm the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder, in America's finest and only institute of higher education in the Buddhist tradition, Naropa University, coming to you live from campus. Matt, it's the first week of class, and so uh, it means we have to engage, uh, as we talked about last week, in the necessary evil that is tabling. Uh, so I'm literally yeah. tabling right now. I just think it's really cool that there are so many tables in the texts this fall, and so you decided to just live that out by tabling while we record. Very cool. Yeah, I'm going to camp out tonight on campus Such by the table. commitment. Uh, we, we, we do have access to a golf cart map, uh, and I use it. I'm not sure how legal it is that I drive it on campus, but I do. And uh, we bring our, like, pop-up tent out because we're very close to the sun here in Colorado, and it'll give me skin cancer again. But uh, I forgot to pre-charge the golf cart, so it died halfway up the hill uh, today, man. So we're going good, going good. Okay. It's changing students' lives. Uh, but, Matt, uh, it's not just the two of us. Today we are uh, very excited to, to have uh, a person with many accolades, the most important accolade of which, of course, is a former bandmate of mine, uh, uh, alumnus of our, our, our beloved uh, seminary there. Uh, Sertron Garrett, welcome to The Final Preacher. Thank you both for having me on. In the same way that the pinnacle of my life was the one show we played at Jimmy's, I hope that your appearance on the podcast is... A similar gift and is the peak of your life. You know, it is definitely the highlight of my week, so thank you so much. <laughs> so what are, uh, we were in school together, um, then you went up into the wilds of, uh, of Western Virginia, which is difficult to describe because of West Virginia existing, but you're no longer in, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley anymore. Yeah, so actually, um, after seminary, we went to Virginia, so we were on the other side of the border. Mm -hmm. We were there for five years. I was serving a little rural church in just a crossroads, not even a town. And then my husband took a job at Drake University, so we moved to Des Moines, Iowa. And when we first arrived, I did not have a call. I had to wait about seven months before I found a church. And I was called to a pretty large suburban congregation. So I went from having a little tiny church in the country where I was the only staff person. And when you looked out the windows, it was mountains and sheep in the fields to being at a pretty large church with about 10 people on staff. And when you looked out the window, you saw Whole Foods. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then um, I left the parish. So you had similar access to uh, yeah. to uh, locally raised uh, mutton. <laughs> yeah. That didn't change. Yeah, that much. stayed the same. That stayed the same. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I left the parish in 2017 and went to work for a large food pantry network in our metro area. And I work with all the faith communities that support that effort. And I do a lot of interfaith work. So I get to not only work with the whole spectrum of Christians in the area but I work with all the religious communities and the not religious people too. So I have a lot of friends in a lot of different houses of worship and different communities. Cool. What, uh, two years now, uh, uh, working with the food pantry, uh, the interfaith kind of deal, what has been uh, the most surprising part of that uh, new adventure? Well, one of the things that I'm surprised by 
is that in working in interfaith, um, I'm so inspired by my neighbors of other religious communities and um, folks who are not believers in the way that they practice their faith or their values, the way they live those out. And it really inspires my own faith. So I feel like my faith has grown quite a bit by spending time with people who are not Christian and different kinds of Christians. Yeah, one of the things that I, I talk about uh, pretty regular in my situation is uh, has been I've been in a Lutheran Episcopal kind of situation in a couple different places now, uh, and I think it'd be really hard for me to be to be Lutheran if I was not in an ecumenical uh, setting. Well, and I uh, I definitely get to feel how Lutheran I am sometimes because yeah. I preach at churches all over the metro area, and so I'll be with Presbyterians, Methodists, Mennonites, Episcopalians, and I'm always like, yeah, I don't really like this so much that they're doing right now, but um, that's how it is here, and we'll roll with it. Um, yeah. And then, uh, but then I'm just. I, I love the relationships that I've built with these different communities and especially um, across the, we have a really diverse religious community here in Des Moines and I love the friends that I've made in these different religious communities and even though there are some pretty significant differences in how um, we practice and what we believe, you know, there are differences that are pretty significant that can't be overcome, we still have relationship and we still have ways we can work together. Yeah. Preached. Uh, it sounds like you preached in a variety of settings, and so I'm going to ask. Uh, we talk about preaching a lot on the podcast. Uh, I feel like you probably have a pretty good, weird, worst preaching experience uh, going around all of those places. Any any good war stories? Oh gosh, well, I just—I think people really like Lutheran preaching. I, <laughs> I've gotten really good um, responses from folks. Um, That's so why I've been trying do... to tell the people over at the Working Preacher. Yeah, yeah. Burn. I, <laughs> I, um, I always do the scripture from memory. Um, I do scripture by heart, which David Rhodes at Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago taught me the way to do it, and so. I, when I come into a community and I do scripture by heart, people are just so impressed because they've never seen scripture presented in that way, proclaimed from memory, embodied fully, really coming to life off the page. And um, so sometimes I think some of my friends, when I go preach um, while they're out of town, they're like, it's no fair when you come and preach because then my people are like, you need to start memorizing the scripture. She did these amazing things. You need to do this too. So, um, but, you know, I don't really have any horror stories about preaching. It's just that when I show up in different contexts, I'm not always prepared. Um, the Presbyterians do this to me a lot. They're always like, hey, create the whole service from scratch. I'm like, what? We, we don't do that in the Lutheran church. And so, and then sometimes I think I have everything I need and I show up and, and in the bulletin it just says pastoral prayers, but there's no prayers. And I'm like, I'm not going to make them up on the spot, but the pastor's office is locked and there's no, you know, they can't get the materials out. And so I have to text friends and see who can send me the prayers so I don't have to make them up just, you know, off the top of my head. Have you ever uh, thought about expanding 
uh, I know, you know, uh, I've, I've heard a scripture by heart before. Are there any mm-hmm. other organs that you've thought about using for scripture? <laughs> well, when I when I do scripture by heart, I'm usually using the whole body for that. Mm, okay. Um, but some um, people have said that I do scripture by colon. Oh no. <laughs> They said yeah. it in a different way, but it. It. Um, I love scripture by heart, especially when it's John the Baptist, and you get to run out into the congregation and get in people's faces and yell at them. It's very cathartic. And you cover and you yourself in say, honey oh, it's, and locusts. It's John the Baptist. It's not me. <laughs> so we were uh, a part of probably one of the greatest musical acts to ever come out of the city of Chicago. And, and by come out, I mean never leave the city of Chicago. Uh, uh, we were in, uh, I believe our name was Team Music, and we played one show. Uh, uh, and in the band, uh, you, you fiddled, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. How did you come to a life of fiddling? Because in my imagination, fiddlers... Typically, I imagine would start as like violinist, but then like make some poor choices and end up as as fiddlers. So there was a, a fellow in my congregation in Virginia who told me that the difference between a fiddle and a violin is you can spill beer on a fiddle. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but story. you know, I I yeah, I don't have a very nice instrument, so it's it's just a pretty entry level instrument. But I still don't want to spill beer on it. But I, um, the only reason I play violin at all is my mom was late to the meeting in fifth grade where um, she was going to get me signed up to play viola in the school orchestra. And they had free violas that you could use through the school. But if you um, didn't have a viola, then you had to pay like $5 a month to rent an instrument. And she was late because that's the way my family always operated. So I play the, I play the violin instead. Um, but what happened was I... I played in high school, I played in college, and then, you know, just here and there, little things. And then um, I met my husband, Will, and he's a great musician. He's played in a lot of bands. And one time we were snowed in, and we had nothing to do, so we got out our instruments, and we started playing Christmas carols, and it was horrible. I mean, it sounded so bad. (laughs) And then he taught me a Neil Young song, and we started to play together, and... So we played here and there, and then when we were in West Virginia on internship, we played quite a bit for church. Um, We played at revivals, we played at the nursing home, Um, and so when we came back to Chicago for seminary, for me, one of the things that I really struggled with is I had a hard time making connections at seminary. I was not on the traditional path as a lot of students are. I didn't start with my class. I had a year of credit from a previous master's, and so I was kind of out of sync with everybody. And so we just started inviting people over to play music as a way to get to know other students. And it was so great. On Wednesday nights, people would come over, and we'd just say, you lead a song, we'll all play. And we ended up with a good group of folks, and it was really fun when you came along, Zach, and joined us. Um, and then we came up with the idea of playing a gig at the end of the year to raise money for the class gift. And for me, that was that was fun. I, I don't think I've played in any bars since then. 
It was it was certainly a source of, uh, of community and connection for me. I uh, though the one of my most formative memories was the first time we came over and Tom uh, Tom Gawkey, friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> led it and sang, and it was uh, Kansas City, I guess is what it was. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I had not experienced Tom do that before. And just in the middle of the song, he starts screaming. Uh, but nobody else seemed too alarmed. So, uh, so just hung in there. I can't, I can't hear Ockerville River without thinking of Tom Golke. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's beat red, uh, screaming his face off. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you uh, are, have also recently engaged in some new, uh, a new endeavor. Yep. So. I'm always needing something additional to step out into, some new adventure to go on. And so um, this year, I've decided to run for Iowa State Senate. So I'm running for office um, against a two-term Republican incumbent who's the president of the Senate in my district. Are you running as a, as a Democrat? I am. I am. That's where my values align. Yeah, yeah. Uh, previous guest and campus pastor at the University of Maryland, uh, Ray Ranker, uh, ran for a house seat in Maryland as an independent. Uh, and we had Ray on uh, a month or so ago. Um, and he found it difficult as an independent. <laughs> but. Well, it's, it's hard. Um, I, don't, I don't have any party support right now because we have a primary. So there's actually three people right now who want to run for the seat in the Democratic Party. There will be a fourth next week, and I've heard rumors of a fifth. So we've got lots of people who are interested in the opportunity and a lot of people who want to see our opponent out of office. And, mm -hmm. and so the party says we can't help anybody. So that's a little challenging to have the party just say, sort it out. Um, we'll see who's the best <laughs> candidate. <laughs> um, but I announced a couple months ago, I had my kickoff event on Sunday, and I had a really good turnout. I've had some really great support from folks. And I feel like as a faith leader, I have an insight into the community and working with all of these diverse communities. I have a lot of really great relationships to draw from. And we've got some significant challenges in Iowa that I know we can do some powerful things with state government. Um, but we need people who are connected to life, um, what life is like for most Iowans. And, um, you know, folks who know what it's like to have kids in the public schools, who know what it's like to have to pay $1,800 a month for childcare, who've had student loans, who've, um, uh, you know, just experienced some of the challenges and pressures that individuals and families are facing. And I feel like I'm a good candidate for that. How did you decide, state senate? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. How how did you decide? Uh, I believe, if my uh, my information is correct, that Iowa has a, a bicameral house, unlike your neighbors yeah. to the west, who are the only yeah. uh, unicameral uh, state governing body. Um, yeah. How did you decide to, to to run for this particular seat? So in 2018, I had a lot of friends who ran for House seats and Senate seats for the Iowa legislature. And so watching their process and supporting them, it made it seem much more possible. But I really lived just right down the street from the Capitol. And I would end up going there all the time for 
different actions, um, subcommittee hearings to speak on issues um, for advocacy days. And I was pretty engaged at that level, at the state level. And I could see that the decisions being made there really impacted the lives of folks pretty immediately. And so it seemed just really within reach for me. Um, the first time I met my opponent, actually, I had come to pray to open the Senate session on his behalf. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've gotten Showed to him. know him. I've gotten to know him a little bit, and um, I, I just don't feel that he really has the heart for this work and, hmm. and what needs to happen to lead our state in the right direction. What are... Um what are some of the immediate immediate issues uh, that are that are central to your campaign? So, in the last several years, the public schools have been chronically underfunded, and it's really hard to see what effect that's having in the classrooms. Every year, they're offering school funding at this this like tiny fraction of a percent increase so it's not even keeping pace with inflation it's not keeping pace with need um, and there are some you know pretty significant impacts of not having that support and so for me public school funding is the biggest thing i want to see that our public schools here in iowa are the best in the nation and it's a lot harder in rural communities when schools are underfunded because there aren't a lot of other options for those schools and the school is really the heart of the community but it's pretty tough in the urban and suburban communities as well and then i see um, in order to try to compensate for the lack of funding the municipalities have to pass additional taxes and levies and bonds to try to support public education um, and even to deal with the you know the building needs that they have and so that you know, we end up paying some way <laughs> but it's a little bit more fair if we can pay um, at the state level or the federal level then we can distribute those funds more equally to support all students to make sure everyone has access to good education I grew up in the public schools um, my kids go to the public schools and I just really believe that we need to make sure that that opportunity is there for every single neighbor. Um, it really benefits our whole community to have intelligent, informed, educated citizens, and that helps them be prepared for their future work lives. Um, so it's good for business too. So yeah, public education is the biggest one for me. In Iowa, we have a lot of um, concern about our water quality. We are 41st in the nation for water quality. So we have a lot of lakes and rivers that are too toxic to swim in. Um, and we've seen a lot of cancer related to contaminated wells in our state. And with the flooding that we experience in this state due to a lot of factors, especially the climate crisis, I mean, that exacerbates the whole water quality issue. And so, um, we could be doing a lot more to address um, water management and the water quality in our state. And that's about funding partnerships with cities and rural areas, supporting farmers and some of those practices that can really make, um, make a difference downstream. And then also for individuals um, to be better with managing their water and um, storm runoff. And then 
Another big issue that's close to my heart is health care. I serve on the board of a nursing home and I see how we're not funding Medicaid um, fully so that it fully pays for the services and the cost of those services. We recently privatized our Medicaid system here in Iowa and it's been an absolute disaster. It's cost a lot more money than the old system we had and people are not getting services and it's making it very hard for rural clinics and hospitals to stay open because they're not getting paid for the services they provide. The private companies are giving them the runaround um, and denying claims and refusing to pay um, and, and then making them wait a long time for payments. And that's, that's really having an effect on the ability of anyone in those areas to access healthcare. So for me, it's those top three things. And I really feel like all three of those issues are economic issues because they impact the ability of our state to um, attract businesses and keep businesses here and support the folks who are working in those companies. And they're very costly when we don't invest early on. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Sarah. It makes me think, um, I have relatives in Iowa, most of them in the northwest corner of the state. I'll have a couple of cousins in Des Moines. And it just reminds me, I mean, we see like, you sort of see nationally, a state turns red or blue and how oversimplified that is, right? Like on the ground, it's so much more complex and complicated. Um, and you do have such diverse communities, I'm sure. It sounds like Des Moines itself especially is, is just quite diverse in terms of views and, and local issues and what's important. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of ways we can come together around specific issues. Um, specific issues that are impacting the day-to-day -day life. Often, I think people start lining up with their team, their political team, um, but you know, water is important to everybody in this state. Healthcare is important to everybody. Um, education is important to everybody, and it should be. Um, and so there's a lot of ways we can work together. Yeah. I want to ask a slightly non political question, which is surprising because sure. Zach, Zach knows how much I post about politics. But there was a fascinating article in the New York Times about the playlists for each of the Democratic candidates for president. Do you have a mm -hmm. playlist for your campaign? Um, I don't have a playlist for the campaign. I have a playlist for today's podcast. <laughs> but um, we did have a, we had a song um, that we played for the kickoff event, which was um, a cashless song. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, oh gosh, it's, um, Here Comes the Change. Oh, yeah. all right. Okay. Well, if you know, if you need consultants on, uh, so the, you know, uh, as professional playlist makers, our services are available, and we, we accept yeah. not only regular cash, but we also accept dark money. So if you end up with any dark <laughs> money, you can always just... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to be really good about campaign finance rules right oh, now. So. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> nobody really listens to this board. podcast. Probably so. a good idea. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Well, All right, we ready for these texts? I think it's time for the texts. Yeah. All right. 
Zach, what are you looking at for the Old Testament text? I know we got a couple of options. I have got a very uh, literally dirty uh, version of uh, of Jeremiah here. We're in the 18th chapter of Jeremiah. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and he was working at his wheel. Can't say that word with my accent. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. And the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as the potter has done, just like the clay in the potter's hand? So you are in my hand. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intend to bring. And at another I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good I intended to do. Therefore say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I am a potter. Here's the easy good news. I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Now turn all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and doings. Uh, good news all around. <laughs> all around, yeah. It's a familiar image. I mean, we hear, we, we hear that... Um, I mean, the potter's house, right, isn't that T.D. Jakes' church, uh, and that idea that we're playing the potter's hand. Uh, it can be, you know, if you kind of pull it out of context, it can be a, a, an easy image. But when you read this whole passage, uh, it does sound a little scary. Like, there are real consequences to this thing. Well, and, yeah, I, I think a lot of pastors are going to be jumping to Jeremiah so they can avoid, avoid Luke this week. Because Luke, Luke, is, Luke is real tough um, right from the get-go. And so a nice object lesson about clay and shaping you. But I think I heard Walter Brueggemann preach a sermon about this and talked about how with the pots that didn't work out, you'd smash them and turn them back into dust so that you could turn them back into clay. And I've always wanted to do a sermon where I was throwing pots, (laughs) literally smashing them on the floor. With your uh, aggressive, uh, you could cross, uh, mash that up with your very aggressive John the Baptist. (laughs) Yeah. I've been known to do some crazy things in preaching. Um, I, I like to light things on fire in epiphany especially so there's some fun things you can do with flash paper but it's it's nice to do something that kind of shocks people a little bit because often with the scriptures you know you get these i don't know these very watercolory pleasant images of what is happening in the bible and the harshness or the surprise of the word it it, it just gets too familiar to people sometimes so I'm not a huge Richard Rohr fan, but uh, I think Richard Rohr is fine, uh, and and he's helpful here. Uh, in the book that came out a little while back now called Falling Upwards, Rohr says that there are two halves to life. There are two parts to life. And in the first half of life, he uses an image of the potter uh, and that life is this striving to make the perfect pot. Uh, but the problem is it always falls uh, or it always breaks. 
Uh, and so we stay in that first half of life as we continue to try to make the perfect pot. But the Rohr says the transition from the first half of life to the second half of life is accepting that the pot is always going to fall uh, and that life is about the process of building a pot that we know is going to break and rebuilding it uh, and accepting and living into that pattern versus this kind of striving to try to make the perfect thing. Um, which I think brings a nice like third angle into the text between like uh, I mean and it's there right between like good and evil uh, right is God going to do good or God going to do evil to us uh, but a third way that says life uh, is is this rhythm and pattern of it's this cruciform shape right of, of life and death and that's how what life looks like um, so it's super descriptive that way there's some uh, Hebrew stuff that, that flashes back um, when the vessel is uh, spoiled here, uh, it's it's more literally marred, but it's the same word used uh, as destroy in the Noah story. Uh, so if you wanted to flip this back into, to, to read this kind of metaphor into some, some narrative from the Old Testament, uh, it's not that that makes it that much happier, that you get rainbows. Uh, the Noah story is kind of an illustration, I think, of, of what this process of forming and reforming looks like. And then finally, the potter is actually literally the former, uh, and it's the same verb to, uh, to use, that was used in the second chapter of Genesis, where it says God forms them out of the dust of the earth. Uh, so God is the former uh, potter, perhaps, I don't know, too many, well, maybe we know more potters than uh, we know sheep herders, but... Uh, but the former, uh, and so that connection to the dust, uh, super bright. God has hands here, very anthropomorphic tongue for that second creation story. What do you got, Matt? Are you complimenting things? No, I think that's good. We should probably stick with this uh, as the Old Testament lesson. It's a really, I mean, it's a powerful image, like like we've said. I do think there's urgency there. Again, it's going to be in our our gospel text again, and maybe this can uh, complement that too. But yeah, a, a good image, uh, but but even some urgency, right? The way it ends, turn from your evil way, amend your ways and your doings. Um, this matters. It it's a nice joining of the urgency of the things that, that it matters, like you say, uh, 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 pairing that with the kind of tenuous reality of things. It, it, it's almost like a marriage of of that, like. Certainly things matter, but also then, um, I mean, I'm thinking of Sarah's work with the, the food pantry, uh, and, and politically, right, pair that with Jesus's, uh, you always have the poor with you, uh, kind of thing as well. Well, I can't help but think about the church when I think about pottery. You know, it's rather fragile. There's this fear of things breaking and being destroyed. <laughs> and with the church today, we're... There's this caretaking, and, and everything has to be handled so carefully, um, and there's fear about damage um, and destruction. And in Jeremiah, they just go right into it and say, yep, and things will be destroyed, and something new will come after that. Yeah, embrace the breaking. Yeah, love it. What you could do is you could take a pot or a plate, uh, pretending you're back in our uh, beloved Chicago at the Greek Islands, and uh, you know, right at the end of uh, end of the Great Thanksgiving, throw the plate on the ground uh, to break at the altar. You know, kind of a celebratory yeah. opa. Opa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you try that. Let me know what happens. Yeah. Uh, just full disclosure, we're not liable for any uh, any accidents that happen in your congregation, <laughs> I, dear listener. Yeah, I recommend safety glasses. <laughs> 
<laughs> Be sure to check with Church Mutual before you engage. Yeah. <laughs> Second reading. What do you got, man? Philemon. It's almost the entire letter of Philemon. I don't really understand why they didn't just finish it out. It's like three more verses, four more verses, finish it out. But it's basically the whole thing is what you get. Uh, it's can be a challenging text, right? So here's the story. Uh, this runaway slave named Onesimus uh, goes to Paul when he's in prison, uh, and it seems like he's with him for a little while, and then Paul sends him back uh, to his master and encourages his master to receive Onesimus back as a Christian brother. Uh, it's a tricky passage, tricky text. Well, it, it, it ties into the gospel lesson in the sense that he's asking... Um, Philemon to take Onesimus back as a brother, as part of the family, rather than the old way of relating to one another, which was as master and slave. And so, um, you know, Paul is asking for a reshaping of the relationship. So, yeah, there was a, a kind of a broken moment in the relationship where Onesimus ran away. And sending him back now and reshaping that family. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, that's definitely the heart of it. And you've got to go, you've got to go strong on verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. I think it's too easy. And, and of course, um, I know that we wouldn't necessarily preach this way, but certainly this passage has been used to, in this kind of slaves obey your masters kind of way, this kind of quietist approach. Um, and I think it's easy to take it that way. So I think you've got to kind of frame it, right? Which, which is exactly what you did, but um, be sure to do that preacher. Make sure you frame this uh, and emphasize what Paul is doing here, that there is a reshaping, that there's a really, it's a really powerful thing for him to send him back and to frame that as a, a powerful moment for Onesimus and not a, not a submissive moment. Well, and what I love about the letters that I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the way it would have been proclaimed in the moment was that the letter carrier would have memorized it, mm-hmm. show up to the community and then embody the writer speaking to the community. And so it would have been this very public moment of reading it whilst proclaiming it to the community as if Paul was standing right there. And so, you know, Philemon's, he's sitting in this chair of honor, so excited to hear this word and that public pressure of, of course, you're going to do this. Of course, you're a good guy and you're going to let this happen. I mean, of course, now he can't say no. So, yeah, um, yeah he's like, Paul, Paul knows what he's doing in um, leveraging that the public pressure and the relationship to make sure that what he's asking for actually does happen. Yeah. And this really takes it from like, if we think about the potter, it's, it's easy to think about that as an individual thing that God reshapes each of us. Uh, but this takes it a little broader than that, right? This is, this mm-hmm. is maybe one, one relationship, but it's a relationship that has pretty strong implications um, for the bigger picture, for the community, for the world at large, for how we structure yeah. these relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is a letter for the whole community. To lead it into the gospel here, Matt, uh, yeah. I think, right, it's about uh, another way to look at it is as a reforming of the family 
um, right, is this reformulation of the family, which seems to be what the gospel's uh, all about. Yeah, tell us about that gospel. Oh, Matt, you're going to do work. Uh, yeah, so we're in Luke. Uh, there are large crowds that are traveling with Jesus, and he turns and says, whoever comes to me does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Sarah, I don't know uh, what your stump speech looks like right now, but maybe <laughs> you want to lift some of these lines. They could really work, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a family values kind of gospel. <laughs> I hear that plays well in Iowa. Yeah. Well, and I, I really appreciate this scripture because it challenges us in what we think is the role of faith in our lives. Often we think of faith as something that kind of fits in with everything else and supports what already exists, but it's a reshaping, it's a restructuring, it's a smashing, it's a um, disruptive experience. And I think anyone who has followed a calling to do something hard, like be a pastor, like run for office, um, you know what that does to your family and what that asks of you, and it's hard. Um, you know, and I, for me to be a pastor, to go to seminary, all of that meant leaving my family of origin, never being there for the holidays, never being able to kind of be the daughter that they had imagined I would be. And now running for office, um, it's important to me and my family understands that, but it's, it's very demanding and it, and it, and it has a, it takes a toll. Yeah, great uh, theologian of the church, uh, um, Yuan Itu, uh, once said of Los Angeles that uh, it's a you'll like LA if you like your friends more than you like your family. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what it means, but I love LA. Um, but it starts to from I mean, afar. From, from afar. afar, I consider myself. You, you don't drive in the traffic. Every an day. expat. Just... Oh, the traffic would be so dreamy. Um, I unabashedly love Los Angeles, um, but the the the. That that's a picture into what I think Jesus is 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 trying to pull us. That's the positive side of this. Um, is that that the reality? Um, well, I think I want to say two things. One, I think in the United States we have incredible amounts of faith in family or the idea of family in terms of what will uh, save us. I might can get on board with that last verse that says you have to give up all your possessions. Um, I could make that work. I've nearly done it. My family did like a, a food drive for me my last year, and a canned food drive for me my last year in seminary. Um, and I can do those things because I have some sort of faith uh, that my family will take care of me and provide, um, will save me, you know. Um, but the, the Jesus is saying even those things need to go away to build this new, uh, new, new family, this new vision, this uh, what Roba Molina call a fictive kinship uh, that is much more inclusive and makes room uh, for everyone. Uh, but that means some of our old. Uh, the old thing's got to go away, just like the pots. And, uh, you know, in my experience in my own life, you know, not being near family, serving communities as a pastor far away from them, I have been given other family and other relationships that are so meaningful to me. Um, and I know for people who 
their family of origin isn't there for them or that's a very painful situation, this can be a really, really good, a word of good news uh, to know that there can be a new family, something new that can be there when the family you're supposed to have isn't working for you. You know, lots of people like um, like to quote friend of the pod, uh, Nadia Bowles Weber's um, thing about how in their new member class she would always say that um, be really clear that that this this church is going to disappoint you. Um, I find a lot of my work with undergrads is some of the first times uh, where folks have enough distance and awareness to, and they're kind of experiencing their families letting them down for the first time. which is a, an interesting place to be, which puts me kind of at this where this text is. But if I have to flip it around and find some good news, which is what we try to do in this, uh, I think my good news, and it will be some work to unpack and get there and, and paint it in a way that it sounds like good news. I think the good news is that your family of, of origin, if you say, as you've said, your family of origin is not uh, your salvation. Um, it's not going to save you. Well, and that there's there's more there's more mm-hmm. family to be had out there, um, which I think everybody in your congregations has difficult family relationships, and so to be thinking about how that could be good news for folks who are really struggling or have lost somebody or um, are longing for some relationship that's not what what they hoped it would be. Well, you know, today was my daughter's first day of, of school, so we did the first first day of school picture by the door thing, you know, which everybody seems to like to do these days. So perhaps a part of that good news, right? All this, like, we, we strive, we work so hard to make, to get Christmas cards out on time. To, I mean, even in these really small ways, it's just this constant pressure to, well, we got to get the first day of school picture, and we got to do this, and we got to do all these family things. Um, and maybe the good news is you don't have to. There is powerful good news in this passage, even though it's clearly challenging. Uh, And I think he does, Jesus does mention in here, he says, uh, he talks about building the tower. He talks about finishing uh, this project. He talks about the terms of peace, becoming a disciple. Those are the things that Jesus is after and that the people listening to him are after. It's just that there's a cost to that. But it's important to not remember that, to remember that there is this, this larger thing that we're after, right? Um, uh-huh. Even if Jesus emphasizes the cost here, uh, and then maybe going to that place of cost and that place of loss is the place to start to get to that place that we need to be. Yeah, well, and we're we're starting to turn towards the cross, and so it's you know he's signaling the cost that's coming. So for those um, disciples who are like, yeah, let's follow Jesus, all those adoring large crowds. No, there's really a cost. Um, this isn't just fun and games. And I think that's important for our crowds to hear, too, that um, this this discipleship really asks something of you, and it's hard. Um, and don't don't be surprised when it, when that cost comes. Yeah. 
I don't know if it was intentional uh, by the folks up there in Higgins Road, but this is the text for God's work, our hands. Um, a day in which uh, we like to wear yellow t-shirts or whatever color the Thriving shirts are this year uh, and feel really good about ourselves going out to the community. Um, but I think, you know, dear preacher, if uh, your congregation has to wrestle with this text as they go out, I think it uh, may not be so triumphant, but also may provide a little more depth to, to what you're you're hoping to do. Well, and I hope for all those Lutheran churches, they are actually leaving their building. I've heard about quite a few that have preferred to just stay with their own people in their own building and do a project where they don't have to encounter anyone or go anywhere. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, just to be thinking about, can we do something that costs us something and asks something of us to be a follower of Christ this weekend? Indeed. I know we love that Sunday. It's uh, my congregation especially loves to wear t-shirts. It's super great. It's super great community building activity. It's all have the same t-shirt on. Uh, I'm gonna be preaching. Yeah, I'm gonna be preaching in an Episcopal church on this Sunday in a little town called Oskaloosa, about an hour or so away from Des Moines. So, yeah, yeah I, I have no idea what to expect, but I'm always kind of having to go out and wander around and be with new people. So, maybe they'll be doing God's work our hands somewhere in Oskaloosa that Sunday. <laughs> That was a theme for a for a, a, a retreat. We have a students on relationships and dating. Speaking of relationships and dating, Matt, uh, you know, there's a, a, a song uh, that I think speaks to these texts because these these texts are really about relationships, maybe dating, uh, and uh, you know, it's about who is in the family of God. And one of the the ways that I've that I've, I've pursued to figure out who my family is. Uh, I did the ancestry like DNA test, and so I recently took the I took another test and I, I got the DNA test, and it turns out I'm 100% that bitch. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Lizzo's uh, "Truth Hurts," uh, which is a really fun song uh, about figuring out who's in, who's out. Uh, but also, right, "Truth Hurts" in these texts a little bit. Uh, but hopefully, we can still get somewhere uh, full of life. Which is, gosh, that's what Lizzo is. So, you know, she she has a degree in uh, classical flute performance from the University of Houston. You know, she plays the flute, you know, in the shows and stuff. But she's like legit. Yeah, there's a great video of her doing a duel with uh, Anchorman, Ron Burgundy. So. <laughs> good. That's, good stuff. that's fantastic. I'm also going to listen to Matt. Uh, I got a full uh, full female playlist. Uh, I'm going uh, Billie Eilish, who, who won Best New Artist last night at the VMAs in our timeline, has a song called Bitches Broken Hearts, which fits it really nicely. I'm also going to go with uh, Walking on Broken Glass, like those shards of, of broken pots by Annie Lennox. But I'm going to suggest you listen to the Lake Street Dive cover. I'm still super into Lake Street Dive at the moment. And then finally, Matt, sorting out who's in the family of God and who is not uh, is something that you might call a family affair. Uh, so let's drop family affair, Mary J. Blige on the pod, on the playlist. Sarah, what are you listening to? All right, so um, these are songs that I picked out before I even looked at the scriptures, but it's kind of my um, my piety. <laughs> it's kind of depressing, I think, anyway, so it worked with the scriptures oh, for today really well. On this yeah. podcast, Sarah, we don't believe in the Enneagram. It's because we're fours. Okay, I, yeah, I'm one of those people who thinks that's all BS. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we um, agree. So that's because you're a four, like us. Number one on my playlist. 
playlist uh, is Nico Case, Hold On, Hold On. And the first line of that song is, the most tender place in my heart is for strangers. I know it's unkind because my own blood is much too dangerous. And so it's, I think it has a lot of connections with this whole love-hate thing with the family and what you're called to in life. And I feel like sometimes I am so much kinder to strangers than I am to my own family. So that's a song that resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, I had asked Zach, is it okay to have songs with swearing in them? And I said, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, this this is a song that is always on my spiritual playlist. Um, Carrie Ann Hurst, she is also part of a duo called Shovels and Rope, um, but it's her song called The Hardest Thing. And that first line is, um, how much fight do you have in you? How much shit are you willing to wade through? And it's all about what God calls you to. And she specifically says that, you know, it's just hard. The hardest thing is the only thing that you do. And sometimes being called to serve your community, to be a pastor, to care about people, it just feels like such a painful thing Um, and quite excruciating. But I didn't want it to all be a downer. So my last song... Um, I was introduced to, I took a class at Harvard Divinity School with um, Ron Thiemann and Elizabeth Schuster-Fiorenza and Cornell West. And it was this crazy class where every time, every session, they just vomit all their knowledge all over you. And they were talking about the comic and the tragic and the songs in the minor key. And Ron Thiemann um, played for us Nina Simone's Feeling Good. And for me, that's one of those songs that it's in kind of a minor key. It's It feels moody and dark, but it's all about um, new life and opportunity. And it really has that sense of like an Easter time song almost. Um, and the chorus of I'm feeling good, yeah. despite all of this dark, heaviness in the world. Yeah, that's a great song. Easter service that way. Yeah, I've always wanted to have Easter Sunday have that be the special music right after the sermon, and get a singer who could really belt it out with a whole band. And I was like, that would be amazing. And I've never had the freedom or the opportunity to make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Someday. Someday. Well, I got stuck uh, in Luke. Did, were, were, there, were those your three songs? Do you have more? Yeah, those are my three. Okay. So, thanks for sharing. Those are great. I got stuck on uh, this building a tower and the thing that this, this project that Jesus is talking about. Uh, it made me think of uh, Springsteen's Working on a Dream from about 10 years ago. And then it made me think of a couple of uh, songs from the 90s. Uh, I think if Zach and I had a time machine, we'd go back and go to Lilith there. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. I, I was at Lilith there. Oh, you were there? Yeah, I was. I was oh. at, um, at the racetrack in Shakopee, Minnesota, <laughs> 1999, 98? Oh. 98, yeah. We're so jealous. <laughs> we're so jealous. 
<laughs> so, uh, someone put a Sarah McLachlan song on Building a Mystery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, I was listening to it again. I was like, oh, this holds up. Oh, I love it. And then uh, Tracy, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, and maybe that's because it's got this line, we got to make a decision. And it's super micro, this this relationship. But I think there's something, again, it's like things that matter, uh, and there's a breaking and a remaking that's happening. Um, so yeah. Well, man, it's been real. It's been real. Thanks for being on the podcast, Sarah. We appreciate it. Yeah. What hey. uh, What uh, should people do to learn more about your uh, campaign? So my website is sarahforiowa.com. That's S A R A H F O R I O W A. They you couldn't get dot biz. No, I didn't. Was already taken. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm I'm at Sarah for Iowa on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, uh, you tweet? Not as much as I should probably, oh. but I'm working on that. Well, yeah, all this shit, that's some shit you got to wade through. <laughs> well, good luck in your campaign, and uh, we'll be following. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fun. Cool. Cool. It's been real. It's been real vinyl.